Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the need to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask for your help this morning as we come to your word and we would ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning that he would help us to understand and to apply this very fascinating text. We would ask for ears to hear and for minds that are open and teachable. We pray that you would receive all the glory from what we consider today as we continue to consider Paul's response to the spiritual needs of his people Israel and how this applies to us today. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Brethren, for several months now, we have been considering the testimony of the Apostle Paul regarding his love and his spiritual burden for his unsaved kinsman, Israel. For it was not enough for Paul to simply mention their spiritual needs, but Paul also wanted to explain why Israel was in the sad spiritual state that it was. In fact, Paul devoted what we now have in our English translations of the New Testament two complete chapters, Romans 9 and Romans 10, to the subject of Israel and her spiritual dilemma. And it might seem easy to assume, given the amount of ink that Paul has devoted to this theme, that Paul struggled to understand how anything spiritually good could possibly come from the fact that only a few among the Israelites had received Christ, and that so many were still unsaved. For who could blame Paul for being disappointed with what had become of Israel and her standing before God. And yet, as we come now to Romans chapter 11, we see that Paul's heart is not filled with disappointment at all. That might be a typical human response, but that's not Paul's response under the Spirit here. Paul's not filled with disappointment, but rather he's, he's filled with joy. Joy in knowing that God's purposes are being fulfilled and that God's faithfulness was being displayed. For what some saw as a disappointment in seeing so few Israelites saved, 
Paul saw as a powerful manifestation of God's faithfulness to those who were chosen by grace as a part of a godly remnant that God had reserved for himself and who came to Christ just as God decreed when the gospel was preached to them. For what happened to Israel was not the result of God's plan gone wrong. Let me repeat that. What happened to Israel was not the result of God's plan gone wrong, nor was it a case of man's actions overruling the purposes of God. But rather, what happened to Israel was evidence of God's plan for Israel unfolding just as God had decreed. It was proof that God would indeed, as he had promised, save some out of Israel's spiritual misery and give them new life in Jesus Christ. For God had not lost control, nor had God forsaken his people but rather God was showing faithfulness to his people by saving Israelites just as God had saved Paul, who had in many ways represented the most stubborn among them, but who had been conquered, as you know, by Jesus Christ. And so here in Romans chapter 11, Paul addresses not the frustrations that men can feel when they doubt the wisdom of God's purposes, but Paul expresses the joy and the confidence that he felt in knowing that God was clearly in control. Paul begins here by asking and answering a question that is designed to put things in their proper perspective, and sometimes we need a perspective adjustment. And that's what Paul is giving us here. For Paul writes here in verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And then Paul immediately answers, by no means. And no doubt Paul begins with this question because he wants to eliminate two chains of thought which can only lead to distress and discouragement. And let me mention these two chains of thought very briefly. First, Paul wants to eliminate any thoughts that God was responsible for Israel's unwillingness to respond to the gospel, either because God was simply unwilling to save or because God made it impossible for Israel to be saved. And as we'll see from the way that this chapter unfolds, Paul refuses to discuss these options as a possibility. Rather, here in our text in Romans chapter 11 this morning, Paul presents God as one who is determined to fulfill what he has decreed for his chosen people, and what he has decreed for them is good. In fact, Paul doesn't use any language here in our text that suggests that God has hesitated to do what is good for his people, or that God has withdrawn what he formerly promised to bless them with. Yea, rather, God has been consistent in his plans for his chosen people, despite the widespread hardness on the part of most of Israel. And therefore, as Paul begins this 11th chapter of Romans, he, he asks and then he answers a question that skillfully steers away from thoughts that God's purpose may have been modified as a result of unbelief or that God's 
purposes had been thwarted because of Israel's refusal to believe. For the truth is, God has never been forced or compelled to modify his divine decree because of unbelief. Because God's decree is eternal and unchangeable and invincible. Nor has God ever been faced with a situation or an obstacle that would inhibit or hinder the fulfillment of his decree since he controls all things that come to pass to begin with. So Paul sets such thoughts aside very quickly. Then secondly, Paul asks and answers this question here in verse 1. I, I ask then, has Paul, or excuse me, has God forsaken his people by no means? Because he wants to emphasize to his readers, to you and I, that God has never utterly forsaken his people. God has never utterly forsaken his people, nor would it be consistent with his divine nature to do so. In fact, when Paul answers this question with the words, by no means here in verse 1, he is declaring emphatically that such a response on God's part would be absolutely inconceivable given the faithful nature of God himself. For God's own nature would forbid, God's own nature would prohibit him from forsaking those whom he had pledged himself to, or he had sworn an oath to. And of course, this explains why some Bible translations have translated Paul's answer to this question with the words, God forbid. In fact, if you have a King James or New King James version of the Bible this morning, you see how that's been translated in this way, God forbid. Because not only does the thought of God forsaking his people conflict with the promises of God in Holy Scripture, but it also conflicts with what God has revealed to us about his own character. For God does not forsake his people. He does not forsake them. In fact, one commentator writes, no message of Scripture is clearer and repeated more often than the unqualified declaration that God can be trusted by his people, that whatever he says is true, and that whatever he promises will come to pass. And certainly, brethren, this has been demonstrated over and over again in God's dealings with his own chosen people among the physical descendants of Abraham and the patriarchs. For despite Israel's many failures and setbacks, despite the many chastisements and judgments that Israel faced out of correction by God, God has never forsaken those within Israel that he's chosen for himself. Never. For it would be completely contrary to his own faithfulness. It would be contrary to his own integrity as a, a loving and caring shepherd. It would be contrary to his own honesty as the source of all truth and deliverance if he withdrew his interest or he withdrew his affections for them or what he promised to give them. And so by asking and answering this question here in verse 1, Paul affirms the consistent and unshakable testimony of sacred Scripture that God never forsakes his people. 
For merely the idea that God might have forsaken Israel, as some of Paul's opponents had suggested, was enough to compel Paul to provide evidence to the contrary, given that God has always been faithful. And so this is what Paul does in the rest of our text this morning. He presents us with evidence that God has never forsaken his people and that God has not forsaken his remnant within Israel in particular. Paul provides his readers here in our text this morning with three types of evidence or proof that affirm God's covenantal faithfulness to his people, that it is absolutely unshakable, that it should never be doubted, that it should never be openly questioned by those who claim to honor God. And the first evidence that Paul presents in affirming the faithfulness of God and his saving purposes towards Israel was Paul's own present standing as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Paul's own present standing as a follower or believer of Jesus Christ, who came from the very same heritage and upbringing as those who opposed him and the gospel, but who had been chosen by God and conquered by Jesus Christ as an Israelite. For Paul confesses here in the remainder of verse 1 that he himself was an Israelite. Notice this, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And in many ways, Paul had identified proudly with those who were strangers to divine grace and opposed to the gospel itself. And yet Paul wanted his readers and us to understand that his own experience in grace was irrefutable proof that God had not forsaken those who had identified with Israel after the flesh and who had claimed to be the direct descendants of Abraham, and who had prided themselves in being individual members of privileged tribes within Israel, such as the tribe of Benjamin. For while these privileges hindered those who trusted in themselves instead of Christ, God's saving choice of individuals from this type of upbringing, from this type of heritage, prevailed. And it was God's sovereign prerogative to call Paul to himself as a testimony to God's rights and God's power to redeem whomever he desires for his own purposes. And of course, this is God's continued right and power even today to call out and to separate unto himself those whom he has chosen for his own good pleasure to openly demonstrate his faithfulness to those he has chosen from his covenant people long ago, while at the same time demonstrating the utter impossibility of his rejecting those whom he had already foreknown. Because the fact that Paul was saved was proof that God had acted in faithfulness. Paul had no hesitation using his own testimony, his own example as a proof of what God can and still does. Then secondly, Paul provides a second type of proof that God cannot be anything but faithful to his people, and that is the testimony of Old Testament Scripture. 
The testimony of Old Testament Scripture, for Paul writes, beginning here in the middle of verse 2 of Romans 11, Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets and have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And no doubt Paul selected this well-known account in Scripture because even the great prophet Elijah had been tempted to believe that God had forsaken his people. This was a real temptation that Elijah wrestled with. And Elijah believed that he alone was the only one left from among the people of Israel who was concerned for the honor of God's name against the enemies of the truth. And even he was under the present threat of elimination. And yet, Elijah was wrong. Elijah was a man of flesh, just as you and I are people of flesh this morning. He was wrong in his assessment of God's purposes, as indicated by God's response to the prophet. What was God's reply to Elijah? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 4. Notice verse 4 of Romans 11. And here in verse 4, by the way, Paul is quoting from 1 Kings 19 and verse 18, where God replies to Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. No doubt this was and remains a stunning revelation from God as to the wisdom of God and as to the superiority of God's ways. For at no time was God without a multitude of faithful witnesses to his power and to his glory. At no time were things as dire as Elijah had thought that they were. Even in a bleak and seemingly dark time in Israel's history, a time of national apostasy, there was never the dire circumstances that Elijah thought there was. At no time was God's saving purposes for his chosen people within Israel ever in real jeopardy. Think about that. It was never really in jeopardy. Rather, God's purposes were more certain than Elijah could have possibly imagined. Or with 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal in that day, God's sovereign plan was never at risk. Never. And had God called upon those 7,000 to stand for him? The overall spiritual landscape in Israel would have been immediately changed. It would have been really quite, quite different. In fact, all would not have seemed to be so bleak if Elijah had possessed the eyes to see that God had already reserved for himself a multitude of men who would never cave in to idolatry. Never who would preserve a godly line among the people because they possessed the Holy Spirit who had been given to them as those chosen by God. And of course, there are other incidents from Israel's history recorded for us in the Old Testament that the Apostle Paul could have reminded his readers of here in Romans chapter 11. The Bible is not scanty in its testimony as to the surety and the certainty of God's promises and decrees. 
one does not have to search long in Scripture to find many evidences that God has superior numbers on his side. To see that God has many reserved who have not bowed the knee yet to idolatry. And that while times may seem bleak, while times may seem uncertain, God's saving purposes are greater than we first imagined. They are far more certain than our circumstances can deceive us into thinking or fearing. For we, like the prophet Elijah, and this is true in every generation, we, like the prophet Elijah, are not alone. We are not alone. And in time we will realize that God's cause in saving his people far exceeds and is far greater than what our limited faith permits us to think if we lose sight of God's power. And then Paul also provides us with a third evidence of God's faithfulness. And that is God's own preference for working with a remnant. God's own preference for working with a remnant chosen by grace as opposed to working in and through all men collectively. Brethren, this is a valuable insight into Scripture and into God's ways that we need to consider this morning. And this is a powerful theological reason. So Paul is not only providing his testimony here and not only providing the testimony of Old Testament Scripture, but he's providing here a very powerful theological reason as well. And it carries as much weight as Paul's own experiences and the record of the Old Testament, which we've already considered. For Paul writes here in verse 5 of Romans 11, that so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Notice the wording here, at the present time, in Paul's own day, far removed from Elijah's day, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And no doubt Paul's use of the word remnant is an acknowledgement on Paul's part that God was working in his own day in the same way that God worked with the remnant of true believers in the past. And I would submit to you this morning that God continues to work with the remnant of believers today. For as a student of the Old Testament himself, Paul recognized that one of the clearest evidences that God has never forsaken his people is the fact that there has always been in every generation a remnant of people devoted to him, and their faith in him testifies to his faithfulness to them. Since he is the author and the finisher of their faith. For example, back in Isaiah's day, when the Lord called Isaiah to preach, the Lord warned Isaiah that most of his hearers would not listen, but that a small, holy remnant in Israel would remain, that there would be a stump remaining after the tree had been cut down. And that's how Isaiah was received by Israel, by the way, when he cried out against her apostasy. The majority did not respond. Only a few, only a remnant did. 
than back when God released Israel from Babylonian captivity. Most of Israel refused to return to the Lord, but a godly remnant did return. In fact, the prophet Malachi assured those who did return that their names were written in the Lord's book of remembrance. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. And of course, there was a godly remnant in Israel before Jesus Christ was born. Just think about the generations. Before Christ was born, there was a godly remnant. There were men and women like Zacharias and Elizabeth. There was Mary and Joseph. There was Simeon and Anna who all embraced the Lord Jesus even before his earthly ministry began. And they were the remnant that God worked with and through. Because in every generation, God has had a remnant sometimes greatly persecuted, sometimes very small, but whom he preserves upon the earth and who live as a testimony of his grace. And Paul declared here in verse 5 that at that present time, the time that Paul ministered and wrote this letter to the church of Rome in, there was a small godly remnant as well, chosen by grace. And this remnant was found in the churches that Paul ministered to and in the individuals that Paul prayed for and ministered to and who encouraged Paul as well. And what did the members of this remnant all have in common? What did they all have in common? They were all called and they were all chosen by grace called and chosen by grace. And this grace set them apart from those who seek to identify with God on the basis of their works. For those who seek to be a part of this remnant on the basis of works, not only misunderstand how this remnant exists, but how the remnant of God is formed this remnant is not formed through human effort or human futility, but it is formed by the sovereign grace of God, which grants righteousness through Christ apart from works. In fact, Paul writes here in verse 6, notice verse 6 here in Romans 11, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so not only is there a present remnant that proves God's continuous and abiding faithfulness to save his people, but it also testifies clearly and loudly that it only exists by grace and not by works. For it is sovereign grace that creates this remnant in the first place and grace sustains it as well. And yet why have some in Israel failed to obtain these things? Well, this is the last question that Paul asks here in verse 7. Notice verse 7. Paul knows that some are demanding an explanation for Israel's failure. Paul acknowledges here that while the elect obtained grace, the rest did not. But rather the majority of Israel was hardened in unbelief. That's what Paul says. And note that Paul doesn't apologize for the judgment that is falling upon Israel. 
nor does he offer some philosophical excuse or explanation for Israel's unbelief. But rather, Paul takes us again directly to Scripture for the answers as to why Israel was in such a bad state. Why was Israel in such a bad state? Well, first here in Romans 11 and verse 8, Paul combines two portions of Scripture. He combines warnings in Deuteronomy 29.2 and warnings in Isaiah 29.10 to describe what happened to Israel regarding her inability to discern her own spiritual need. In other words, because of her unbelief, something happened to Israel. She lost the ability to discern what her spiritual needs really were. Notice, God gave Israel something. Paul says here, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see. Ears that could not hear down to this very day. What Paul describes here is a form of spiritual disorientation. Spiritual confusion and disorientation that keeps them from responding properly. This kind of judgment from God should deeply concern each of us as well. So remember, Paul is saying that this kind of Formation of a remnant applies to today, and I would suggest then that this type of judgment from God can apply to this day as well. It's possible for God to send a spirit of stupor. Possible for God to give people eyes that don't see, for God to give people ears that do not hear because of their unwillingness to respond by faith. Then lastly, here in verses 9 and 10 of Romans 11, Paul quotes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69. And this psalm contains David's prayer for those who would persecute the godly and those who refuse to submit to the Messiah's rule. And what's really interesting here about this psalm, you can spend some more time examining this on your own, is that Paul actually turns this psalm around, rather than talk about those who persecute Israel, he applies it to Israel persecuting those who know the truth. Israel persecuting those who know the gospel to explain why Israel is being judged as one who is doing the persecuting and being chastised for her unbelief. For Paul slightly modifies verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 69 to read differently here in Romans 11.9. Notice what he says in Romans 11.9. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And so once again, the, the consequences of unbelief are, are serious. They inhibit one's ability to discern their own spiritual needs. They inhibit one's ability to take proper steps to remedy the situation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. 
And so what do we find here in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 10? What, what is of profound theological and practical benefit to us today? We're reading about Israel in the past. How does it apply now? Well, we're not only granted some insight into God's dealings with Israel throughout history and at the present, at the present, but how God never forsakes his people. Furthermore, we've been reminded that God's saving purposes are, are far more extensive and far more expressive of God's great wisdom than we tend to realize and tend to acknowledge daily. And then lastly, we see through Israel's failure, a warning, a warning not to seek God's acceptance on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace. For as Paul stated back in verse 6, grace is not compatible with works. If salvation is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Therefore, let us learn from Israel's unwillingness to meet God on his own terms. And that's what we must do. We must meet God on his own terms. We must submit to his terms, not insist upon our own. Let us ask God to remove from us today any spirit of stupor, any sense in which our eyes cannot focus on the truth and see it for what it is, any sense in which we cannot hear clearly and understand and comprehend what the Word of God is saying. Let us ask God to replace this spirit of stupor, these ears that will not hear, these eyes that will not see, with a new heart and a new will. May God grant that to us today, a new heart and a new will, to see His faithfulness, to rejoice in it, to live for Him, to be glad to be a part of the godly remnant that he has formed and is using today to rejoice in what God is doing, even in the day of small things, knowing that God's purposes will ripen quickly, knowing that we shall rejoice in the end when all of God's promises are fulfilled. May God bless the reading of his word and the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, how we thank you for your word today and for this message regarding Israel and help us as Gentile believers here this morning not to quickly dismiss these words as though they have no application to us, for they apply to us as the children of God, as those who've been chosen by grace unto salvation. And the things that Paul warned Israel about, we need to be warned about. The things of faithfulness that Paul calls Israel to need to be observed by us as well. Oh, help us to delight in thy faithfulness. Help us not to be discouraged even when things seem bleak, even when things seem burdensome, but help us to believe that you are working your purposes as you desire and as you prefer through a godly remnant that you have selected for yourself.